I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Consulting Editor for CMAJ. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Kristen Chu-Smith and Dr. Colleen O'Connell, who are two of the authors of a clinical practice guideline on the management of ALS. This evidence-based guidance is published in CMAJ. I've reached Kristen in London, Ontario, and Colleen in Fredericton, New Brunswick, to discuss. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Before we sort of launch into the guidance in this guideline, which is, I know was a, a monumental effort, um, can you each tell me a bit about who you are? I'll start. It's uh, Kristen Chusmith. I'm the uh, medical director of the Motor Neuron Diseases Clinic in London, Ontario. So I'm a neurologist and my primary practice is ALS, but I also do other neuromuscular diseases as well. And... This is Colleen, and I'm, as, as you mentioned, in Fredericton, New Brunswick. I'm actually a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation, and I work at the Provincial Neuro Rehabilitation Center called the Stan Cassidy Center for Rehabilitation, and my practice is predominantly in addition to ALS and other motor neuron and neuromuscular diseases. I work in traumatic spinal cord injury and brain injury. So Colleen, let, let's start with you. Um, how many people in Canada have ALS and what are the most common symptoms? Sure. ALS, even though most people consider it and we do think of it as a rare disease, it's actually one of the more common neurodegenerative diseases of middle age. At any one time, there's probably about 3,000 Canadians who are living with the, with the disease. One of the hallmark findings is what we call progressive muscle weakness, often that is painless. It can start in any region of the body. Most commonly, it starts in a single limb, either an arm or a leg, but it can also start with bulbar involvement, which would cause dysarthria or dysphagia, and it's generally progressive. And for all patients, uh, at some point, in fact, almost 80% of all patients will die from respiratory-related failure. So there are more people than people might think actually have ALS. Um, so I'm going to sort of move on to another question, which is connected. Given the number of people, why is there a need for this guideline, but at this particular time? I wonder if you could answer that one, Kristen. So Canadian ALS clinicians have been talking about developing a guideline for probably over a decade. Colleen knows how long we've been chatting about this. And um, it took a long time to get going, but we have finally uh, accomplished this massive task. We identified that there was definitely a need to publish guidelines that would help us manage ALS patients. We knew of other guidelines that had been published previously. The American Academy of Neurology has an ALS published set of guidelines, but that was published quite a long time ago in 2009, so there's obviously been updates since that time. But the other thing about those guidelines is that they didn't give very practical advice for the care of patients. So we, when we set out to write these guidelines, wanted it to be really helpful and be a practical set of guidelines to care for patients who have ALS. We also wanted to include evidence wherever it was available, but we didn't want to stick just with the evidence. We wanted to be able to do consensus statements as well. So the experts who care for ALS patients, uh, we wanted to make sure that there was guidance from the experts as to the care of ALS patients as well. Um, as I mentioned, the previous guidelines were published quite some time ago, and so there has been a new drug that's been uh, approved since the original uh, publications of the other guidelines, and so that needed to be included in the guideline set as well. The other thing is that Canadians have unique issues that, that um, we feel it's important to address. 
Uh, one is wait times. And so we thought that it would be important to address how long should it be appropriate to wait for certain interventions to care for patients who have ALS, whether or not that is a initiation of BiPAP, whether or not that's a feeding tube insertion, or even to be seen for a diagnosis confirmation by an ALS specialist as well. MAID is also another one of those unique issues um, that we felt we should include within the guidelines because that's another ALS specific issue within Canada. If I can add to Kristen, one of the things that was a strong motivator for all of us involved with ALS clinics across Canada is that a guideline like this really gives us a, a standard to which we can all try and benchmark our own interventions and our management within our clinics. It helps us all ensure then that we're meeting the needs that are expected uh, across the country for our patients. It allows us then to also provide the highest possible quality of care for all of our patients, and it becomes an advocacy tool. It allows us then to provide the rationale uh, for the resources and the support where we need them in our clinics. There are, we've already alluded to, there are a lot of recommendations in this guideline, and there's no way we can cover all of them in the podcast. So I encourage listeners to read the full guideline on cmaj.ca. But let's go over the key recommendations. And what I'd like to start with is a communication of the diagnosis. Kristen, do you want to take that one? Sure. Um, as listeners to this podcast probably are aware, receiving a diagnosis of ALS can be quite devastating for a patient, um, largely because they know that it's a progressive disease without cure. Um, so obviously, when a patient receives this type of diagnosis, it's very important to make sure that it's a compassionate disclosure of that information and that the appropriate amount of information is delivered to the patient. Um, As you can probably imagine from your own practice, some patients would like a lot of information at the time of uh, diagnosis, whereas other patients may only want a small amount of information because they could be overwhelmed if you deliver too much information to them at once. So it's so important uh, when a physician is tasked with uh, delivering the diagnosis to a patient that they have the time, so um, non-interrupted, non-rushed time to discuss the diagnosis with the patient to begin with. The next is to be able to read the patient and understand how much information that they want to receive. You do not need to give everything to the patient. And in particular, we um, in the guidelines talked about prognosis. It is not necessary to talk about prognosis at the time of diagnosis. A patient does not need to know what kind of time frame they have in front of them. Uh, For one, you don't always know the answer to that, and so it's always good to read the trajectory that the patient is on in front of you. The other aspect about diagnosis is to make sure that patients are seen in a timely manner. Obviously, a patient who is seen by a family physician or potentially a community uh, neurologist who is concerned that patient in front of them has ALS, that patient is going to need to be seen in a very timely manner to make sure that there is not a lot of stress they're living with and to be able to make sure that that patient is aware of what treatments can be given to them and that there is hope for management of symptoms um, going forward, as well as the hope of the clinical trials and experimental therapies that may help with that uh, patient. So making sure the patient is seen within a four week interval of time um, at a time of referral um, for the confirmation of the diagnosis is extremely important in our mind. And um, just generally, having a patient deliver a diagnosis who is knowledgeable about the disease and available for questions afterwards is also so important. One extra point we made about the diagnosis is that timely follow-up of these patients is also really key. So what we do in my practice um, is that once we deliver a diagnosis, we follow up by telephone with the patient a week after. 
Other clinics may follow up in person with that patient a week after. So it's important that there is a follow-up um, just so the patient does not feel alone and that they feel very supported at the time of the diagnosis. You know, I thought one of the things that struck me in the guideline, um, you had mentioned, um, uh, referred to a study of satisfaction, patient satisfaction with how ALS was disclosed. And one of the stats that really struck me was that one third stated that they were not given a contact to follow up. I know. Yeah, it's, it's quite concerning that there's not this timely follow-up afterwards um, because the patient would just um, spiral downward if they don't have that contact and, and feeling of being supported. So it's so important to have that timely contact afterwards. Absolutely. So, you know, I know that you've already mentioned that there have been some recent advances in, in treating ALS. And Colleen, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what kind of pharmaceutical therapies are recommended, um, particularly given that there's, uh, there's a new drug that's available. Certainly. Uh, I think first it's important too to point out that of our pharmacologic uh, interventions that we have for patients, there are, we kind of divide them into two different classes. There's first, there's the drugs that are intended to be disease modifying. So conferring a survival or a slowing of progression benefit for the patient. And then there are a number of pharmaceuticals and interventions that are presented in the guideline as well that are more geared towards symptom management, not necessarily a prolongation of survival or a slowing of progression. So the first of the pharmacologic agents for disease modifying is a drug that's actually been available for over 20 years. It's called Rylazole. It's an anti-glutamate agent. Uh, it's an oral medication that's taken twice a day. And it's been demonstrated in numerous studies, as well as some real-world evidence uh, reports, that it will prolong survival. And there's evidence that it can slow progression. The first studies done showed a median survival of about three months. But when you read through our, our publication on the guidelines, uh, we also refer to some newer evidence that suggests that this is even uh, longer in terms of a survival benefit. So this is very important for patients. Um, the newer medication, I was going to ask Kristen if she'd like to step in and, and, and talk about Adarivone. Yeah. So Adarivone is uh, the newest medication in the disease-modifying category to treat ALS. Adarivone um, is a medication that was approved by Health Canada just two years ago now, as it was October 2018, although just in the last year has it been added to the provincial formulary. So it's a, quite a new medication that we've been talking about in clinics. Now, Adarabone um, did demonstrate in clinical trial uh, to slow progression of disability over a six-month period of time. Uh, but the interesting thing about this drug is that um, it, it is not an effect that's demonstrated across all patients with ALS. It was only in a restricted um, patient population, um, such as those patients that are relatively at the beginning of their disease and do not have any significant respiratory involvement at that point in time that demonstrated improvement with this medication. The improvement demonstrated was a slowing in the progression of the disability with the, with the patients. So in the appropriate patients, meaning those patients that uh, met the criteria for inclusion for the clinical trial that demonstrated efficacy, it is the uh, appropriate treatment to offer these patients. The tricky thing about this, this therapy though is that it's an intravenous therapy and it has this really interesting and unusual treatment regimen whereby there's a loading period where they get a daily infusion over an hour for 14 days in a row. Then they get two weeks off. And then they go into repetitive cycles where they get 10 out of 14 days, so business days in a two-week period of time, two weeks off. And again, 10 out of 14 days and two weeks off. 
So for a patient to accept this therapy, they have to um, assume quite a bit of uh, alteration in their life schedule because they have to get into IV infusion um, quite frequently with that type of medication. Um, so that was uh, obviously a significant addition to this guideline. And important to note that any of the other published guidelines do not include that medication in the guideline because this will be the newest uh, set of guidelines available. So when you're talking about the, the new medication, we have to keep in mind Again, a specific group, not all patients. And then I know we're going to talk a little later about uh, managing this in rural versus urban settings, but obviously given the commitment that patients and their families have to make, um, that needs to be taken into consideration when making decisions about using this drug as well, I'm sure. Absolutely. So not all patients will accept it because of the alterations in their, um, what they foresee as a good quality of life. So not everybody would want to be hooked up to an IV um, for an hour a day um, or have to travel to a clinic to potentially get it. So those, there's things that have to be considered when we discuss whether they should accept that treatment or, or consider a good option for themselves. Exactly. Now, symptom management is, you know, incredibly important in ALS management. So I'd like to move and talk about some of the key recommendations. And, and let's start with actually uh, managing respiratory symptoms. Maybe Colleen, if you would like to take that one. Certainly, my pleasure. Uh, and as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, respiratory related issues are the primary cause for morbidity and mortality among this patient population. And so these the guidelines specifically around respiratory care are very, very important. Um, our guidelines, in fact, however, are relying and, and consistent with guidelines that have very recently been published by the Canadian Thoracic Society, who have really taken a global lead in publishing guidelines for home management of patients with a variety of conditions. And they just very recently updated their home mechanical ventilation guideline for persons living with ALS, and those were published in 2019. And so part of in crafting our Canadian ALS guidelines, we aligned these with other published guidelines, and in particular, this Canadian thoracic guideline. So I encourage people to please also look that one up. But some of the highlights and a few of the things that we also focused on was the very important role for routine and frequent monitoring of respiratory symptoms. Every three months or at any time there's a major clinical change, uh, we need to screen and evaluate patients' respiratory function. And we do that by looking at symptoms and with spirometry. It's important uh, for physicians to realize that patients do not need to be seen in a specialized sleep lab. That spirometry that uh, is important for ALS can be managed by bedside spirometry and simple overnight oximetry. And above all, we're, we rely heavily on their symptoms. If a patient is symptomatic for respiratory insufficiency, they should be started on non-invasive ventilation. And non-invasive ventilation can be delivered uh, with, with devices and even set up at home or in local clinics, depending on your region and their regulations. Uh, but non-invasive ventilation can be done with, with BiPAP machines, uh, with volume cycled ventilators, as well as um, in some cases you can use a CPAP machine, but we, we're more encouraging the BiPAP or, or ventilators that can see a patient through a longer duration of their illness. Uh, a change in the Canadian guidelines from other guidelines is an 
earlier indication for initiating non-invasive ventilation. Previous guidelines have reported using uh, at a FVC or a forced vital capacity of 50%, but we're recommending at 65%, even in the absence of symptoms. The evidence supports that the earlier we intervene, even if patients are able to comply with this intervention for as little as four hours a night, that will confer a survival benefit. We strongly are stating that this needs to be done in a timely manner, and we've actually put, put timelines that within a referral for initiation of non-invasive ventilation, they should be started within four weeks. Um, and this is something then that will allow us to benchmark that, those treatments and advocate for those resources. We also, in our guideline review, um, other areas of respiratory function that are incredibly important for patients, uh, quality of life and symptom management. Uh, this includes airway clearance. So this is keeping your airways uh, cleared of secretion and there are a variety of interventions such as using lung volume re recruitment and mechanical inexsufflation. One of the unique things that we have in our Canadian guideline as well is introducing the concept of having in-home supports with respiratory therapists for problem solving and for proactive following. And as well, we've introduced the intervention of, of mouthpiece ventilation as an option uh, for our patients. We're going to be talking a little bit later about palliative care, but I think one of the things that struck me on the uh, ventilation, uh, ventilation recommendations that you mentioned that um, advanced care planning discussions should include discussing these interventions and uh, including the option of removing treatment that's been initiated. Yeah, that, that's, that's a really important point and it's something that's a, it's a little opposite with our patients. I mean, people get very used to sort of advanced care planning and having these do not resuscitate orders, but in fact, many of our patients with ALS will already have these interventions in place because they are helping to prolong survival, they're improving quality of life, they're managing their symptoms. And so for most of our patients talking about advanced care planning, it's making decisions on when to remove these types of interventions, not necessarily if they are going to allow them to be initiated. So it's a very, very different conversation for sure. Let's move on if we may to nutritional management. Um, what are the key recommendations for that? Right, so just like respiratory care, nutrition management is another really important aspect that we follow quite closely within the clinic. Uh, the recommendations that we have made um, include the fact that nutrition um, status needs to be evaluated relatively frequently within the clinic. We've given a baseline of every three months, the patient should have their nutrition status uh, evaluated. Um, and that can be altered depending on the clinical scenario of that particular patient. So some patients who have more rapidly progressive disease may need that assessed more frequently. Those that have slower progressive disease, it can be uh, more slow. And actually, we haven't made that point already, but I, I think that that's a really important point just to highlight right now is that not everybody with ALS has the same trajectory or the same type of disease course. There is lots of heterogeneity within this disease, and that's why having the experience um, in a specialty clinic is so important to, to identify what patients may need to be seen maybe every six months because they've got slowly progressive disease or every, um, every three months. So when we talk about looking at their nutrition, um, I think it's really important to look at their weight as well as their BMI, um, but also their swallowing status. So um, multidisciplinary care includes having a speech pathologist look at their swallowing to make sure that they're not having significant aspiration risk. If it is identified that the patient is having significant weight loss or is at a significant um, uh, aspiration risk, 
or the other aspect, if the respiratory function is declining and the future um, possibility of a feeding tube may be challenged by the respiratory status, those would be the indications that we would initiate a feeding tube or at least suggest the um, insertion of a feeding tube. Now, a percutaneous feeding tube, um, if it is suggested though, we want to make sure that it's inserted in a timely manner. Again, going back to that timeliness of interventions. And we've um, made a point in these guidelines that we would like the uh, nutrition intervention to be initiated within four weeks if it has been uh, suggested. The other uh, aspect is we would very much want to have the patients who have a feeding tube inserted, um, inserted by someone who has comfort and knowledge about ALS, um, to make sure if there's any respiratory insufficiency in these patients that they have adequate respiratory support around the time of the insertion so that the uh, mortality or morbidity of the patient isn't compromised at the time of insertion as well. You've mentioned several times sort of the, the notion of expertise. <laughs> yes. Um, so patients with ALS, um, they require expertise, they require multidisciplinary care. So um, given particularly Canada's, you know, um, geography, how should this care be delivered, you know, rural versus urban settings? Can you t tell us a little bit about that? Sure, this is Colleen. So coming coming from a province that is, uh, I guess you could, many of our cities would actually be considered rural when you compare it to some of the larger, more central parts of the country. But uh, we we have in our guideline, uh, I think some of the best evidence actually is around the multidisciplinary care. And so this is a team-based care that prospectively follows a patient through the continuum. And it includes not just the physicians, but various therapists, uh, speech pathology, psychological support, respiratory therapy, as well as addressing psychosocial issues and, and end-of-life care. And patients who are followed in these multidisciplinary care clinics with that ALS uh, specialized care have been demonstrated to have improved survival. They have fewer and shorter hospital admissions. They actually are, are, are have reports of, of better quality of life. And some of this may relate to uh, their better compliance and earlier uptake of important interventions, such as the disease-modifying therapies, the feeding tubes uh, that Kristen mentioned, as the and the non-invasive ventilation that I reviewed. Now, we have also, very unique to our guideline, have, have uh, indicated that telemedicine and telehealth options are feasible and can be used to supplement these specialized clinics that would be otherwise done in person. And there is some evidence to back that up as well. And so for patients, not just in rural settings or remote settings, but patients when they get to a stage in their illness where travel becomes quite burdensome and difficult, this may be due to inclement weather or the stage at which they're at for, for mobility or the supports needed, for instance, just for the simple fact of getting in and out of a vehicle and traveling to, to uh, a clinic out, outside of the home might represent significant challenges. So we're strongly recommending that, that telemedicine and telehealth options be, be considered and explored to help optimize patient access and care, and that all patients uh, should be referred to one of the multidisciplinary ALS specialized clinics. And there are these clinics throughout every province uh, in the country and, uh, and in areas where they, a patient may not be able to, to travel, telemelth and telerehab options are certainly viable.
COVID has really been able to provide us with an accelerated acceptance and support for doing telehealth and telemedicine. So it's one of the positives that's occurred because of this, this pandemic is that it's forced many institutions now and, and health facilities to adopt and support and, and get provincial uh, buy-in from, from payers, such as the Medicare systems, uh, to support that health actually can be effectively delivered through telemedicine and telehealth services. And um, patients uh, are being studied now in terms of their preferences and feedback and experiences, and it appears overwhelmingly to be quite a positive one. That's great to hear, because um, that's certainly building that kind of acceptance that having the infrastructure available um, can only uh, stand us in good stead in the future. Now, obviously, the ability to communicate is absolutely critical for patients and their family and friends. Of course, there are issues around cognition as well um, in ALS. Kristen, can maybe you can tell us a little bit about what, what is recommended in the guideline on those points? So communication is, could either be very verbal communication, like we are doing right now, or by writing, um, either typing a note or filling out an essay. And with ALS, patients can develop dysarthria to the extent that they may not be able to communicate verbally any longer or develop severe bilateral hand weakness and they cannot type um, or communicate by, by writing any longer. And as we are all aware, um, being able to communicate appropriately is good for quality of life for this patient as well as autonomy for these patients. So it's vital for the ALS patients to be followed regularly by, by a speech language pathologist. And if communication does become an issue, they are referred for services that can help with their communication. And typically that's through a AAC clinic, which stands for Augmentative and Alternative Communications. And at those clinics, they can look at whether the patient would benefit from a text-to-speech option. So on an iPad, potentially texting and having a, um, a vocalization occur. The other um, option that they will look at is whether or not the patient would be a good candidate for eye-gaze technology. And this has been an amazing advancement over the last uh, few years. The um, advancement of eye-gaze uh, technology for communication has been incredible. And so just appropriately referring those patients so that they can have access to that type of uh, communication tool is so helpful. It is uh, also really important to be proactive. So if you're thinking a patient is going to potentially develop significant dysarthria such that they lose their speech, you could consider referring that patient for voice banking. So if they bank their voice and the sounds that they're able to make, then when they do transition to a text-to-speech option, then um, it could be their voice that's speaking on their behalf. Um, so just having those um, options for the patients and being proactive in the communication is, is so important. The other thing that you asked about was cognition and behavioral impairments. So um, in ALS, um, it has been known for probably about um, 20 years that um, it is not always just a motor disease. So it, although it's predominantly a motor disease, it is not solely always a motor disease. In about 50% of patients, there could be detectable cognition or behavioral changes. And then probably about 20% of the ALS population, there can be frank dementia that occurs. And that's super important to be able to screen for those abnormalities because if there is presence of cognition or behavioral impairment, that could impact caregiver uh, relationships with that patient, frustrations at the home as well. But also importantly, having the presence of either cognitive or behavioral impairments does affect prognosis, which is obviously important for the patient and the family to be aware of, and communication of their desires or decision-making about their desires. 
So having discussions about advanced care planning in the setting of um, presence of cognition or behavioral impairment is super important to, to have as early as possible. How do you manage cognition or behavioral impairments other than talking about these conversations? Unfortunately, there's no treatments. Um, so it is uh, usually a multidisciplinary approach to managing the behaviors and discussing uh, how to overcome some of the um, cognitive impairments. You know, you've mentioned caregivers. And obviously in the pandemic, we've had a lot of focus in, in the media on the role of caregivers, particularly in, in long-term care and the, and the stress on them. I know that, that you've made some recommendations um, directed for caregivers, their caregivers and, and their, their health and their well-being, and particularly around also the area of palliative care. I wondered if, Colleen, you could um, tell us a little bit about some of the recommendations uh, for the care of caregivers, um, and then particularly uh, in the context of palliative care. Sure. Well, I think one of the most important things is the fact that we have recognized caregivers, and that's something that's unique in this guideline and uh, perhaps a Canadian uh, uh, sentiment in terms of we, we try to think of, think of everybody and, and not forget those that, that uh, there may not be a lot of information from from a research point of view, uh, but we have, as an expert group, put together a, a number of expert consensus statements with regards to caregivers. And I think the most important is that we have to be attentive to the needs uh, of these caregivers, the physical needs, the emotional needs, as well as the impact that, that this disease has on social, emotional, and financial functioning. It, it's a very expensive disease. It's, it can be devastating to, to patients and their families. And so the multidisciplinary clinics need to be aware of this and address that financial strain on the caregivers and be prepared to provide information on uh, resource programs, respite care, and supports. This is where also uh, our national uh, ALS Canada and their affiliated organizations can be very helpful. And we have, you know, important alliances and collaborations with our community partners that can be there to help uh, for our caregivers. Um, we also make a, an expert consensus recommendation that we, we should be assessing their burden, the coping strategies, and looking at the family dynamics uh, that then allows us to provide the appropriate uh, support services and respite services recommendations in place. And um, when, when you mentioned about palliative care, I think where palliative care services come in is, is they're a very important partner in, in our treatment and management of our patients with, with this disease. And we have also recommended that palliative care services be considered really at any stage and that they should be considered throughout the disease course, not just at the end of life uh, uh, period for the patient. Uh, palliative care uh, physicians and teams and there's there's their healthcare professionals are trained in symptom management and certainly they should be introduced whenever there is severe physical psychological or existential distress and we've uh, worked with our palliative care colleagues uh, in uh, in order to ensure that our guidelines are addressing what they're able to provide and support our patients with. And so to ensure that kind of integrated continuity of care, the palliative care services should be introduced before that advanced stage of the disease at end of life. And they are often in a position, particularly around respite care, that can directly relate back to providing support services and respite uh, for, for those uh, family caregivers. 
Yeah, this recommendation to involve palliative care earlier is, you know, certainly consistent with with what we're seeing in terms of their role, you know, across the board in in medicine. I think um, patients and families and and often clinicians thought, you know, palliative care comes in at the very end. Um, And obviously, um, as you said, they're experts in symptom management and um, uh, engaging them earlier in the, in the disease, in, in all kinds of diseases, not, not just ALS, um, is, is a really important thing uh, to improve quality of care for, for patients and, and, and for families, uh, uh, for that matter. Very true. You know, we've covered a lot. This guideline has a lot of recommendations and we've covered a lot of them, but we have just, you know, in this podcast, we've just, you know, tip of the iceberg. Um, you know, I was really impressed about the, the breadth of the work that, that your group took on. Are there any other recommendations that you think are particularly important to mention um, at this time? Maybe, uh, Kristen, could you address that? Sure. We just There's a couple other ones we wanted to highlight. One I'll just um, mention briefly as well, just because it's uh, a Canadian um, first, I think, as well. And that's that we included exercise prescriptions within the guidelines as well. That's not something that's been in other guidelines, and it's uh, uh, something that patients always ask about. And there is evidence that exercise uh, can um, help with the uh, progression of the disease and improve the progression. Also uh, evidence that it can help with symptoms as well. Um, I shouldn't steal Colleen's thunder because this is her baby being a physiatrist, um, but Colleen could expand probably on that um, further. Um, but I think the other things that are important to mention um, that we highlight in these guidelines is uh, the fact that we mentioned medical assistance in dying, which is obviously an important um, factor to talk about in the Canadian context. We don't give specifics about how to proceed with MAID and um, in the guidelines, only more discussion about how uh, requests about MAID uh, should be discussed in the clinic setting. Um, And one of the important points is that not everybody who asks about MAID in an ALS clinic wants MAID. They just want the information. They just want to be empowered. So delivering and and having the discussion about uh, MAID is is so important within this uh, context. The other aspect that's in this uh, guideline is the fact that it, it is possible for patients who um, pass away with this disease to potentially donate their organs. And so we just have a, con- um, a short statement about organ donation um, in the context of uh, ALS. Diane, I know you know that there's relatively recent guidelines published in the CMAJ about this as well. So there, um, so just I'd highlight that component as well that reflects back on the previous um, CMAJ uh, guidelines about organ donation. Those are just a quick snapshot of some other uh, highlights within the guidelines. There's many other, I think we counted 132 recommendation statements within the guidelines. So it's a huge document, um, but so, so important in improving the care of ALS patients and essentially setting a standard uh, for the care of, uh, uh, for ALS patients across the uh, country. And when patients are faced with this very complex and devastating disease, um, having a set of guidelines to help them um, and help their physicians care for these patients is uh, so important. Agreed. I'd like to thank you both so much uh, for joining me today to talk about this important guideline. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Diane. Well, I've been speaking with Dr. Kristen Chu-Smith and Dr. Colleen O'Connell. To read the guideline they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. You can also get the full document on ALS Canada's website. Both are linked in the podcast description. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Diane Kelso, Consulting Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>